Hello, and welcome to the Told You So vlog, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> our first episode here, uh, as Carla and I are hunkered down in self-isolation <laughs> next to each other. We're maybe 50 yards away from uh, each other, but doing a video call here. Uh, no close, but yet so far. So, uh, of course, that's Brink over there, and I'm Carla, and hi, welcome to uh, this hunkered down edition of Told You So. <laughs> my basement office and to Carla's awesome office. You got, I mean, I need to decorate more. This is, this period of my life has taught me, you know, with all the remote calls and everything, uh, I need a better background and I need better lighting. As soon as the sun goes down and I don't get this natural light, I'm like, I look like I'm in like a Tales from the Crypt. You know, it's bad news. Yes. <laughs> light, lighting is key. I'm lucky. I've got lots of office lights here and, and windows and stuff. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, once we rig this into our professional level 2.0, we'll, we'll get the fancy lights and stuff. And hopefully by then we will uh, not actually be hunkering down because we scared of no epidemic, pandemic, scary, scary times. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think I'm kind of looking at this as an opportunity to uh, shore up or strengthen some of the skills where I'm lacking, like this sort of live video production or, well, not live video production, but uh, streaming video. And uh, these are all things that are useful tools that I should know how to do and that I want to know how to do really well. So I'm going to take this opportunity to learn how to do it. <laughs> so, yeah. and, uh, and so one thing I just learned is I guess my notification sounds are still on on my phone. So I'm not really sure how to set that uh, off. So uh, just for everyone listening along back home or watching along, this is our test run, but we are coming to you again live from Manchester, New Hampshire. Live is good. <laughs> Live-ish. We're alive from Manchester. But I, I do love the framing you just gave of, well, you know, these are skills we need to know, and if not now, why not, you know? And that's certainly how I'm just looking at the situation. I'm really happy to say Louis back. He came back from South Africa. That was sort of nerve-wracking. It was, you know, watching the countries close down, you know, and... And uh, so I'm very happy he's home, and uh, we're just, you know gonna celebrate with our cache of guns <laughs> <laughs> just throw them on the bed and roll around in them <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm of course half half kidding but um, I am uh, I'm really happy he's here but to your point you know when we just went for a hike out of the dam and it was it was awesome because there were just tons of people out more than you would usually see and i've seen this all week actually um you know during the day two o'clock in the afternoon just sort of seeing um dads out with their like you know 10 year old sons you know everyone on mountain bikes like like it really feels like there's a sense of of, of family and community in the air so maybe you know i've half jokingly said all week you know maybe the world just needs a reset and a refresh and a little rest and maybe that's the opportunity right now is people can you know stay at home reconnect and and you know and learn new cool things like what we're doing today well, and that's what, you know, with work too. So obviously I, I work for a grassroots political advocacy organization. And uh, a lot of what we do is based around having people come into the office and do stuff. 
Um, unsurprisingly, that's been kind of slowed down a little bit. Uh, we closed the office last week um, and we've been kind of transitioning to doing everything remotely. And I think that we talked about this a little bit in our, our show last week, um, but it's been very interesting to see how people all over the place are adapting to this. Um, if there's one thing that I wish I'd done uh, in the early days uh, of this whole situation, it would be to buy Zoom stock. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we're using it right now. We were using it for, um, we've had some of these uh, activist town halls where basically what we do is have, you know, 20 people uh, who just want to hang out with each other, hop into a big chat room on Zoom. And as you can see now, you know, we've got these like side-by-side -side videos. So it's a gallery of 20 people and it's all friendly faces and you just have a conversation and hang out. And um, The other cool thing is you can break people out into, it's called breakout rooms, where if there's like a sub-conversation, because when you get to a certain point, like people are talking over each other. Um, so you can break them out into separate rooms. Uh, so really just trying to create the closest analog that we can to um, real in-person time uh, but remotely. And it's kind of neat. I think that some of the, you know, people make statements like, oh, there's nothing that's the same as face-to-face -face interaction or blah, blah, blah. Um, I don't know. Like, we're finding some things that are pretty close to the same. And it's pretty neat. I mean, I, I think that it's, uh, we're going to keep doing it. And I, I think that one of the biggest things, you know, this show, today we're going to be talking a little bit about the opportunities that might come out of this uh, crisis situation. Because there, uh, every time, all right. <laughs> not not shorting or or longing or putting uh, Zoom stock. That's not right. one of them. But yeah, Zoom, well, if you would like to sponsor this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and I there's oh man, sorry. There's <laughs> this there's like a saying that I don't know if it's true, um, but it's like, oh the the Chinese word for crisis has the ideogram for opportunity in the word crisis. And I don't know if that's true or not, but I think about it sometimes, whether or not it's true. I, mean, I do think it, I, I think it is true. Um, you know, bringing up anything Chinese right now is <laughs> probably like a little, I mean, those are the kinds of things when I hear those stories, maybe, maybe as a starting point for opportunities of things, um, that you know we can seize as opportunities. How about people don't turn into xenophobic, racist, idiot assholes? No. I mean, is that too much to ask? Yeah. So I mean, I don't know if this is entirely true, but I've heard stories of people saying, you know, Chinese restaurants um, are not, you know, getting any traction or any, you know, just silly things. Where I'm like, look, if you're ordering food from some other takeout store you're equally fine ordering it from a Chinese store. <laughs> yeah, that's ridiculous. I mean, I, that, that's the kind of dumb that I don't know if you can even do anything to stop, but I know that I'm trying to support uh, the Golden Tao down the street here. The, uh, the owner's husband just had surgery and, oh, wow. you know, so they're like, they, they could use some support and they're having a tough time. So anyway, yeah. Well, you know, I think all small businesses really right now are, are, you know, facing a challenge and I don't really want to delve too much into the politics of any of this, but I think we actually have a bit of a danger with Donald Trump as president currently because 
you know, he's a, he is, uh, he is really a populist in, in most ways, right? Like, I mean, he's just, you know, he's kind of a popular dude. And I don't, haven't really gotten an impression that he really understands anything about macroeconomics, right? Like, I mean, he's definitely well, not libertarian he, on economics. There's like a, an ideology that informs the decisions that he makes regarding... Right. I mean, in some ways, he's a really big symbol of just crony capitalism. I mean, that's really what he is. But why I think he's dangerous now is because we have, you know, there's the hands are out for a whole bunch of things from the left, right? Like I could see this um, hearkening in UBI, universal basic income. They're already talking about $1,000. I saw a quote from Andrew Yang this week where he was like, hey, like I quit my race in February and I didn't know by March we'd be talking about cutting a check of $1,000 for every American. And I was like, oh no. Um, so UBI, I think they're going to try and uh, use this to turn the internet into a utility. So, so basically, you know, there's, there's that kind of stuff happening. But then on the other side with the populist stuff is, you know, we've, we've seen the big business cronious bailouts 2008 with the money and stuff. But there's a real incentive for Trump to be like, let's give some shit to the little guys. Right. And so we're actually going to double up because I, I mean, I don't know if average person is, understands this, but like the difference between a billion dollars and a trillion dollars is so much, right? And they've literally talked about the stimulus packages from 2008 to now jumped from, you know, hundreds or tens of billions to trillions. That is so much money. Like we must be in the financial collapse. Like I'm not that worried about the pandemic. I'm worried about like what's going on economically. Right. Well, and it is kind of a test, you know, so I was listening to this uh, show, it's, uh, I can never remember the names of the hosts, it's called the Demilitarized Zone, and it's, I think I've mentioned this before, it's like a, a very, um, like a mainstream Republican kind of guy, and a very mainstream Democrat kind of guy, who are both very smart, thoughtful people, and I like, you know, it's like, it's a good uh, way to get insight into what people are thinking about this stuff, um, but yeah, the, uh, the thing that they were saying, it was just this, like, uh, Trump, he, he doesn't have, like, an ideology that informs what he's doing, so he's kind of going with just whatever will get the most positive response in a lot of ways, um, and there's no, there's no conservative impulse to not spend money, you know, um, like, even, like, the, the, the guy that's, like, the mainstream Republican guy on the show, he was, like, well, like, I, I have this natural reaction. We're going to spend a trillion dollars. Like, whoa, whoa, like, let's let's talk about it and think about it. But that's not even there for Trump. Um, so, yeah, and beyond that, too, it's that just like 9-11, as we talked about before, again, uh, when <laughs> these people who want something passed see the opportunity to jam it in to something that will have to be passed. Because, again, I mean, God, to be a congressman or a senator who voted against the coronavirus relief package, like talk about an arrow in the heart when you go back to your district and run for reelection, they'll just skewer you. So uh, they can jam a bunch of stuff into these big, you know, assistance bills that shouldn't be in there. Um, particularly, and I think that, you know, I don't know, I think that you and I might disagree here. Uh, and it's not about like what I want to happen, but what I think is likely to happen and what is likely to be able to be stopped if that makes any sense um 
it seems like there is a there's going to be some sort of massive uh, transfer payment of some kind that's going to be coming. And it's because, I mean, there's a legitimate case to be made if all these governments are saying you can't do business, there, there is harm that they're doing to these businesses where it's like they need to be compensated for it because they're being told you're not allowed, you know. Um, so there's like a real harm there where it's not just like free handout money. This is like the right, government and they need to compensate them for it. But the big but being above and beyond like very specific targeted relief to businesses and industries that were directly affected by this stuff so like for like restaurants event planning um people that do you know uh uh like theater and production stuff um you know they've been really screwed like there there's no question but outside of that i mean there's already people who are lining up with their hands out for you know we need a bailout for uh for private jets we need a bit, you know, all this stuff where it has nothing to do with uh, anything that was affected by this coronavirus stuff. And that's right, what but we need to just absolutely be slamming the alarm bells. Well, yeah, but I mean, that's part of the problem at its very heart with government, right? If, if government is just a re wealth redistribution machine, which quite frankly, at this stage, it pretty much is. And they're certainly making sure they get theirs first, you know, lest we forget all this insider trading information that's coming out. And I find that uh -oh. extremely amusing because, you know, I have uh, friends on the left and on the right. So, you know, when I'm looking at my feed as a good libertarian, I'm sort of seeing the whole gamut. And so my friends on the right are all posting the insider trading stories from the dirty Democrats. And my friends on the left are all posting the, the insider trading stories from the dirty Republicans. And I'm like, do these two groups of people actually know both sides are doing it? Well, it although, all right, hang on. So there might be a different takeaway here for me, which is that, again, I think we talked about this yesterday. <laughs> the, uh, when you, when you get elected to Congress, you put all your assets and holdings in a blind trust and you don't know what happens to them. Like that's, that's what you do when you become a public official to avoid conflicts of interest. Otherwise you wouldn't be able to do it without constantly having conflicts of interest. So like the idea that like these people, regardless of their own like badness, this, in this particular case, this seems like one of those, Ooh, these fancy pants elites are getting away with it. And it's like a populist line, but What's funny is that it's it's just entirely a partisan cudgel. Like I don't think that anybody's <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> oh, that's great, great television there. Um <coughs> I, I don't think that anybody's actually uh that concerned about the corrupt insider trading. They're interested in look at how bad the Democrats are, look at how bad the Republicans are, you know? That's the story and the juice. It's nothing it's like uh it's like a simulacra of a political issue, which is like let me, let me talk about uh, French philosophy for a second. There's this guy, Jean-Paul Baudrillard. I think Jean-Paul. I, I just assume they're all named Jean-Paul. Um, his last name is Baudrillard. And he wrote this great book uh, called Simulacra and Simulation. And it's about the idea of like cultural concepts or um, ideas that are referential to an original that never existed, if that makes sense. So okay. it's, like a, it's like a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy, but the thing that you're holding has nothing to do with the original. It's like, it's its own created structure. 
And being upset about insider trading because the Democrats did it or being upset about insider trading because the Republicans did it, it's like a superstructure. It has nothing to do with insider trading. Do you get what I'm saying? Like it, it's, it's, a, it's a political dispute that's, that's tacked on to uh, something that could be thought to be an issue. Does that make any sense? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure if what you're saying is like, I personally don't think there should be a crime like insider trading. I think that's a nonsense, bogus statist construct. So I don't know if, uh, if that's the part you mean where it's like, well, insider trading shouldn't be illegal. So people shouldn't be upset about that. Right. Because I do think in a truly free society, we would see information as knowledge. And so information is actually quite valuable, which is actually what we're seeing now, right? We're, we're seeing in ways like data is becoming a commodity. And I don't think we as a society have really grappled with the idea of it yet. And, and that data is... Right. <laughs> so, so, you know, so like, should, should it be a crime? No, but the thing is, if, if the story that they tell us about how government works was true, meaning government is supposed to be open and transparent and accountable to the people, then if they had known, then at that moment, so should all of us have known, and then we could have all made the money and then crashed the market instead of the elites only doing it. So yes, I feel I mean, like you have made those decisions with the information that was publicly available. like. A couple of weeks ago, giant pandemic is happening and spreading to Europe. Hmm, hmm, I wonder if this will negatively affect the markets if you, you know. Well, oh, and, and I think that's totally legit. And I do agree 100% that it is a political, uh, like I said, I mean, my feed is literally filled with, with you know, propaganda right. from the left against the right and propaganda from the right against the left. And here are the same normal middle class people, the libertarians, independents in the middle. And I don't know why people aren't all going, I'm ditching that group and I'm ditching that group because you know who seems like the same bunch in the middle? You know, if, if, if listeners want to do themselves a favor, like start reading Reason's articles, you know, just yeah. there's this magazine that actually kind of breaks down what's happening in the world in a way that's, you know, it's, it's, understandable it's kind of like cool and pop culture but it also just breaks through a lot of the 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 noise and the yeah actually nonpartisan. i think is the key to it like it they don't have an axe to grind where they're trying to get their team to be victorious you know other than the thought and examining things through evidence and reality (laughs) yeah and the thing is it wants those I mean, I've been using this hashtag cognitive dissonance, like a play on cognitive dissonance. I'm on a team of one with this one, hashtag cognitive dissonance, done and done. But, but I, I mean, I'm doing it because I'm like cognitive dissonance, right? Of course, which is, you know, when people try and hold two conflicting ideas in their mind, I have to feel like the entire world is now walking around with that sort of thing. And so if we, if we circle towards the idea that we wanted to talk about today, which was, you know, what are some of the positives that can come out of this? Louis yeah. said, I shouldn't say this line, which of course is a red flag. So I'm definitely going to say it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, I'm gonna, uh, so, so I'll say it and then I'll explain. So families that medicate, no, meditate, 
together, meditate together, masticate together. So, meaning families who meditate together, eat together. Okay. <laughs> you know why he said I shouldn't say it. So I was very clear yeah. in my pronunciation. <laughs> so I had this moment this week, uh, like earlier this week. Um, I, 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 while Louis was gone, I was really good about my diet. I was good about sticking to sleep, my exercise. Like it was really a bit of a test to be like, I've established all these habits. Can I keep? them going without like someone, you know, like without a wingman helping and all of that, right? So I felt really good about that, but I also did break into the emergency chocolate supply a little more than I probably needed to. So I could feel that in my joints, right? <laughs> the, the sugar, the sugar makes my joints hurt. So one night I put on my, my meditation app and I just meditated for 10 minutes and I had gone up and down my basement stairs like a couple of times at night, which is when I realized my joints were hurting. And then I meditated and then a half an hour later, I went upstairs and my body did not hurt after that 10 minutes of meditation. And it was such a remarkable like feedback loop where I was like, oh, I didn't like, yeah, I meditate and oh, I know it's good for you and whatever, but I could actually physically feel less pain and you know and i was just like wow okay so you know we got to encourage everyone to start meditating because we're gonna have to heal the world i mean i'm not talking sick like covid virus no you know yeah. 19 wuhan clan bullshit Part i'm talking like the world is out of balance and maybe we can recalibrate it and so the the, the motivation should be what are things that people can be doing at home to restore balance in their lives? And I think it's diet, exercise, meditation, uh, you know, like eating a, a whole foods, cooking together again, like really kind of just resetting. And that's why when, it, when we started and I said, seeing those families with the dads out during the day with their kids, their sons, you can tell everyone's blowing off energy. Like it was really, it made me happy. I was like, yeah, that's what it's supposed to look like. No, that's nice. Yeah, no, I, I, it's been, again, so that's what we're, we're <laughs> now that we're 25 minutes in, we're talking about the opportunities that this might create. Um, one of the things, and again, we, we spoke briefly yesterday, we've been trying to figure out all the tech side of this. So we've had a couple of meetings uh, and we're finally doing it. But um, we were talking about how in these big urban areas, how, um, with everybody working from home or not everybody, but with everybody that's capable of working from home, working from home, all of the white collar workers, all of the knowledge economy people, um, anybody where you don't need to actually physically be present to do the job that you need to do. Um, I think that one of the things that could happen here is that number one, I mean, this is not a, a unique insight, but that there will be a work from home revolution of sorts where people just see the uselessness of going to an office. Um, for the vast majority, I mean, I'm imagining for people that are like in, a, in accounting and in, you know, all of those sorts, it's like, oh my God, you have to sit in a cubicle? You, why? <laughs> to, what to work on a spreadsheet? <laughs> yeah. And then kind of as the second order effect of that, uh, what that could mean is a bunch of commercial real estate becoming uh, totally undesirable <laughs> because who wants this massive amount of office space when you can get by with your your in-person people and it's you know a tenth of the of the people that you need if you had everybody coming into the office um 
and really, I mean, I so much of that, the like, the, I'm gonna sound like a like a wobbly here, but it's like so much of that is from like bosses wanting to physically observe their workers and like the structure of it with the cube farms and stuff. It's for like an overseer to be able to observe in like a panopticon sort of like (laughs) um, earlier episode. But yeah, like maybe we don't need the panopticon. Maybe people can actually do their work themselves. And maybe that won't be true for a bunch of people and they'll want to go back to the office, but uh, I could see it being a big change. But yeah, like imagine if people don't want office space, if Manhattan, if all those uh, huge corporate office buildings, they can't rent and they're, they're not getting tenants, it can solve the housing crisis in a bunch of these places. I mean, even in New Hampshire, we have, I think it's a 1% uh, vacancy rate or less than 1% vacancy rate mm-hmm. in, uh, in residential uh, real estate here. So imagine if, uh, you know, 800 Elm, which is this big, maybe 15 or 20 story building. It's like one of the bigger stories in town. Um, one, of the bigger, one of the bigger buildings in town. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, imagine they convert, you know, four floors, five floors of that to apartments. And that's, that's 150 new apartments or something. Um, and, and honestly, if one did that with sort of uh, like a, a plan for true property rights, mm-hmm. so it's like, don't do it like they did it in, in uh, post-apartheid South Africa, where there was the brain drain and the white flight from downtown Johannesburg. And so people left and there were these empty office buildings and then we had a huge squatter problem that sort of came in. I mean, if people did this, let's do it with, with like the right plan from the outset. And so that plan would be the the owners repurposing it, you know, I mean, because that's what, if you think about the paradigm of like the mill buildings and how they've gone from being really, I mean, like burned out junkie zone, like, like 15 years ago, the mill buildings here in Manchester along the river it was all broken windows and people squatting in them and it was, it wasn't good. And Arthur Sullivan and Ray Wysorek worked and they, uh, they rehabbed a bunch of those mills and now it's like fancy office space and fancy apartments. So, you know, I'm thinking like the, the, the transition of those mill spaces from like burned out husks to luxury buildings, the exact same thing could happen with these big skyscrapers. And it's like, it's kind of exciting to think about uh, because right. and I honestly, I mean, I would want to see it even, I mean, obviously the property owner can do what, it, what they want and they should be able to repurpose and hopefully maybe there could be like zoning relief on that kind of stuff. Right. But it could be also kind of cool. And, and this is something I might want to see happen in New Hampshire long term is they don't currently have condo laws here. And I certainly know like in some other places where we've had a lot of real estate development and stuff. Uh, allowing these, you know, four, four story or five story apartment buildings to actually be condos so that you have, you know, five property owners. Um, It's something I think that could work in this kind of scenario. And what I'm thinking about is, you know, when, when Margaret Thatcher, I I keep going back to her, she was awful on so many things, but this was something that did impress me. Um, you know, I mean, there's a reason the IRA blew her, tried to blow her up. You know, she was bad on the Falkland War. She was, you know, she was bad on some stuff, but she was pretty good on, on free market economics. And what she did when she privatized the, the council homes, she, um, you know, she, she radically, she sold them under market value. And she just led all these people who had been, you know, kind of living on the largesse of government on this nationalized 
thing that made everyone unhappy. It was gray, it was miserable. No one, you know, you didn't own it, so no one looked after it. It was just crap. And she let them buy them for under market value. And within three years, like those areas totally turned around because all these people were suddenly property owners who had this vested sense of, you know, sell, uh, you know, like the uh, uh, property ownership. It's like yeah. with this. No, I, know. Clothes, I, I treat my house a lot differently than I treated apartments I rented. That's for sure. Because <laughs> like, I own it. You're part of the problem, Brink. I treated all things equally well. Oh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well no but it's there, there's an aspect of like if you're you're living on somebody else's space you know if something breaks or if you want to make something better it's like i'm not going to spend my money to make this other person's place better uh, yeah well i mean you are talking to the sucker who literally put in you know like a really nice pantry and a really nice walk-in closet for a renter dude and then i tried to trade the fact that my dog had eaten the, the carpet in one of the rooms and he just totally shafted me anyway oh that's larry so the landlord boo oh you remember that that must have been an experience that was on Notre Dame in Manchester. Really? <laughs> yeah. That place over by the church, your old house? I mean, a custom-made pantry built by fabulous um, Duchess of Dykedom Buzz. And <laughs> she'll love that. I'll make her I'll make her listen to this episode. But so with the with the property rights, I mean that's certainly that, that could be an interesting, cool, dynamic change. Um, another thing I would love to see just happen is we have a, there's a real overload right now on uh, federal firearms uh, applications and stuff. I mean, the system is just totally overloaded. So maybe a positive, immediate change could be that, you know, we just don't run federal background checks. I thought, from what I understood, the slowdown was the state database. I thought, because, like, if you buy a shotgun, it's a NICS uh, background check, which is, that's the federal one. But if you buy... Uh, I think it's always all federal. Uh, I, think I mean, I think that's part of the was, problem, right? Well, I don't know, because that's what I was just talking to people. I know that there was kind of a, a rush on gun stores recently, and uh, I guess the purchases, like, it's an instant clearance that you get for shotguns and that kind of thing. But for handguns, there's a separate thing where you end up, you have to wait, like, three days or something. I don't know. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting. I mean, I you know, it's, it'd be cool to see, uh, you know, people who are not typically that into guns suddenly all going, oh, ha, you know, that zombie apocalypse that everyone's been warning me about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what um, she did put out that uh, zombie preparedness guide. That actually, it's funny. I remember a bunch of conservatives freaking out about it. And they were like, we're spending money on talking about zombies and you know, I mean, it, it's like they were just trying to make epidemiology fun and interesting because The Walking Dead was really popular. Like, chill out, guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, once again, going back to that sort of idea of a, a reset or a rest or any of that, I mean, I think it also wouldn't really hurt for the world to, to be a little more prepared. And so another thing to maybe think about dialing up is that sort of concept of self-reliance and sort of really trying to reach like our friends and neighbors. I think, you know, we've talked about people who work from home, but you know, it's an adjustment 
we always hear these stories of like uh, elder, you know, when, when one of the partners retires and then suddenly people are around and it's kind of like when your grandpa comes to visit and you turn around and he's always there in the kitchen no. with a screwdriver being like, what can I fix? You know? <laughs> You're like, stab it right here. <laughs> I am not really stabby towards old people, but, um, but even that can be a bit of an adjustment. So, you know, I, I think being sort of, uh, cognizant for people of that idea of finding your family's flow again and finding like how you spend your time and maybe really sitting down and looking at your daily schedule and kind of going, Hey, what's going to work for all of us? Let's plan this out. Because I think once people start to manage their time, First of all, you're gonna have like a couple of extra hours really, right? Where you're not commuting, you're not getting out of the door, you're not like doing those other things. And so maybe there's like cool family building opportunities. I'm just, yeah, I'm just gonna, you know, goody two shoes this all the way to the end. <laughs> I think the, uh, the homeschooling, people that already homeschool are probably like the people to look to in this situation because it's like, I saw an interesting thing where it was like, don't make your kids wake up at 6.30 and get dressed. Like, let them sleep in, see what they want to do, talk to them. Like, you teach them math through doing stuff like construction projects and cooking and baking and, you you know, all this other stuff uh, where it's, like, interesting ways to get kids involved in, like, adult life and show them, you know, model good behavior for them and teach them stuff at the same time. And Anyway, there seems to be a lot on that front. I, I, I love that. And... You know, I, I, a part of me has this like sort of bitter partisanship part where I'm like, yeah, don't you Democrats now wish you'd taken that 46 million that we could have been using for alternative schooling and maybe have not crushed the Learn Anywhere programs that would have allowed people to learn anywhere without all these problems. Yeah. I don't know. Just saying. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, I think that we're kind of running up on the end of our time here, believe it or not. Wow. Right? It's way faster when you do the video call. Um, yeah, I like this because I, you know, I feel like we actually, like, watch each other more. Yeah, and I know. It's cool. Um, and it, for our listeners and watchers, I suppose, uh, that we're, we're trying this out on Zoom and there's a 40-minute limit on the meetings for the recording. So I'm going to probably call it quits here. Um, but thank you so much for talking with me, Carla. And I think, you know, it's exciting that even if it turns out that the COVID virus, COVID-19, you know, uh, like sprays out of all of your pores and is just the most effective thing in the world, we can still do our show from our houses here. So <laughs> anyway. Just uh, for, for everyone back home, I am not contagious. <laughs> yeah, no, nor am I. We're, we're just being good model citizens, obviously. As there we, we go. <laughs> responsible human beings but i'm also about to go to a place that's surely going to have more than 50 people at it <laughs> all right well have a great weekend everybody and uh or we'll have a great week since it's coming out on sunday and we will talk to you again next week i swear there won't be 50 people no carly you'll be safe we'll spray you down with lysol when you get home <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right. have a great day all right, peace <laughs> out.